Section six of My Life in the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cataclyc. My Life in the South by Jacob Stroyer. Chapter two, part three. The death of Cyrus and Stepney. Old Colonel Dick Singleton had several state places, as I have mentioned. In the South, the rich men who had a great deal of money bought all the plantations they could get, and obtained them very cheap. The colonel had some ten or twenty places, and had slaves settled on each of them. He had four children, and after each had received a plantation, the rest were called state places, and these could not be sold until all the grandchildren should become of age, after they all had received places, the rest could be sold. One of the places was called Big Lake. The slaves on these places were treated more cruelly than on those where the owner lived, for the overseers had full sway. One day the overseer at Big Lake punished the slaves so that some of them fell exhausted. When he came to the two men, Cyrus and Stepney, they resisted, but were taken by force and severely punished. A few days afterwards the overseer died, and those two men were taken up and hanged on the plantation without judge or jury. After that, another overseer was hired with orders to arm himself, and every slave who did not submit to his punishment was to be shot immediately. At times when the overseer was angry with a man, he would strike him on the head with a club and kill him instantly, and they would bury him in the field. Some would run away and come to M. R. Singleton, my master, but he would only tell them to go home and behave. Then they were handcuffed or chained, and carried back to Big Lake, and when we would hear from them again, the greater part would have been murdered. When they were taken from Master's place, they would bid us goodbye, and say they knew they would be killed when they got home. Oh, who can paint the sad feeling in our minds when we saw these, our own race, chained and carried home to drink the bitter cup of death from their merciless oppressors, with no one near to say, Spare him, God made him, or to say, Have mercy on him, for Jesus died for him. His companions dared not groan above a whisper for fear of sharing the same fate, but thanks that the voice of the Lord was heard in the north, which said, Go quickly to the south, and let my prison-bound people go free for I have heard their cries from cotton, corn, and rice plantations, saying, How long before thou wilt come to deliver us from this chain? And the Lord said to them, Wait, I will send you John Brown, who shall be the key to the door of your liberty, and I will harden the heart of Jefferson Davis, your devil, that I may show him and his followers my power. Then shall I send you Abraham Lincoln, mine angel, who shall lead you from the land of bondage to the land of liberty. Our fathers all died in the wilderness, but thank God the children reached the promised land. The way the slaves detected thieves among themselves. The slaves had three ways of detecting thieves, one with a Bible, one with a sieve, and another with graveyard dust. The first way was this. Four men were selected, one of whom had a Bible with a string attached and each man had his own part to perform. Of course, this was done in the night, as it was the only time they could attend to such matters as concerned themselves. 
these four would commence at the first cabin with every man of the family and one who held the string attached to the bible would say john or tom whatever the person's name was you are accused of stealing a chicken or a dress from sam at such a time then one of the other two would say john stole the chicken and another would say john did not steal the chicken they would continue their assertions for at least five minutes then the men would put a stick in the loop of the string that was attached to the bible and holding it as still as he could one would say bible in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost if john stole that chicken turn that is if the man had stolen what he was accused of the bible was to turn around on the string and that would be a proof that he did steal it this was repeated three times before they left that cabin and it would take those men a month sometimes when the plantation was very large that is if they did not find the right person before they got through the whole place the second way they had of detecting thieves was very much like the first only they used a sieve instead of a bible they stuck a pair of scissors in the sieve with a string hitched to it and the stick put through the loop of the string and the same words were used as for the bible sometimes the bible and the sieve would turn upon the names of persons whose characters were beyond suspicion when this was the case they would either charge the mistake to the man who fixed the bible and the sieve or else the man who was accused by the turning of the bible and the sieve would say that he passed near the coop from which the fowl was stolen then they would say bro john we see this how that thing work you pass by the chicken coop the same night the hen ran away but when the bible or the sieve turned on the name of one whom they knew often stole and he did not acknowledge that he had stolen the chicken of which he was accused he would have to acknowledge his previously stolen goods or that he had thought of stealing at the time when the chicken or the dress was stolen then this examining committee would justify the turning of the bible or sieve on the above statement of the accused person the third way of detecting thieves was taught by the fathers and mothers of the slaves they said no matter how untrue a man might have been during his life when he came to die he had to tell the truth and had to own everything he had ever done and that whatever dealing those alive had with anything pertaining to the dead must be true or they would immediately die and go to hell to burn in fire and brimstone so in consequence of this the graveyard dust was the truest of the three ways in detecting thieves the dust would be taken from the grave of a person who had died last and put into a bottle with water then two of the men of the examining committee would use the same words as in the case of the bible and the sieve john stole that chicken john did not steal that chicken and after this had gone on for about five minutes then one of the other two who attended to the bible and the sieve would say john you are accused of stealing that chicken that was taken from sam's chicken coop at such a time in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost if you have taken sam's chicken don't drink this water for if you do you will die and go to hell and be burned in fire and brimstone but if you have not you may take it and it will not hurt you so if john had taken the chicken he would own it rather than take the water sometimes those whose characters were beyond suspicion would be proven thieves when they tried the graveyard dust and water when the right person was detected 
If he had any chickens, he had to give four for one, and if he had none, he made it good by promising that he would do so no more. If all the men on the plantation passed through the examination, and no one was found guilty, the stolen goods would be charged to strangers. Of course, these customs were among the Negroes for their own benefit, for they did not consider it stealing when they took anything from their master. Josh and the Corn A man engaged in stripping fodder put some green ears of corn in the fire to roast, as the slaves generally do in fodder-stripping time, although they were whipped when caught. Before the ears were roasted enough, the overseer approached, and Josh took the ears out with some live coal stuck to them, and put them in his shirt bosom. In running away, his clothes took fire, and Josh jumped into a creek to put it out. The overseer said to him, "'Josh, what are you doing there?' He answered, "'It is so warm today, I thought I would go in the creek to get cool off, sir.' "'Well, have you cooled off, Josh?' "'Oh, yes, sir, very much cooler, sir.' Josh was a very hearty eater, so that the pack of cornflour allowed the slaves for a week's ration, lasted him only a half. He used to lug large sticks of wood on his shoulder from the woods, which was from a mile to a mile and a half away, to first one and then another of his fellow negroes, who gave him something to eat, and in that way he made out his week's rations. His habit was to bring the wood at night, throw it down at the cabin door, and, as he walked in, some one of the family would say, "'Well, Josh, you fetched us a piece of wood,' He would burst into one of his jolly laughs and answer, Yes. Soon after they had given him something to eat, Josh would bid them good night, but when he went, the wood disappeared too. He would throw it down at another cabin door as before, go in and get something to eat, but every time he went away, the wood would be missing until he had found enough to eat, when he would leave it at the last cabin. Those to whom Josh carried the wood accused others of stealing it, and when they asked him about it, he only laughed and said that the wood was at the door when he came out. Josh continued the trick for quite a while. Finally, one night, he brought a stick of wood and threw it down at the cabin door, walked in, and got something to eat as usual. But as he came in, the man of the family, to whom he carried the wood, bade him good night, and said that he had business out, which would keep him so late, that Josh would be gone before he got back. While Josh was busy laughing and talking with the rest of the family, the man went out, and secreted himself in the chimney corner of another cabin, and it was not long after he took his stand, before Josh bade the family good night, came out whistling, and shouldered the wood, but as he started off, the watchman cried out, "'Is that you, Josh?' Josh threw the wood down and answered, "'Oh, no, tisn't me.' Of course, Josh was so funny. One couldn't get angry with him if he wanted to, but the rest of the slaves found out after that how the wood Josh brought them was missing. But poor Josh died at last, away from home. He was sent with some of the other Negroes from Mrs. M. R. Singleton's plantation at Columbia in the year 1864 to build fortifications at the defense under General Wade Hampton against General Sherman, and while there he was taken sick and died, under the yoke of slavery, having heard of freedom, but not living to enjoy it. Runaway Slaves My readers have no doubt already heard that there were men in the South who made it their business in the days of slavery 
to raise and train hounds especially to hunt slaves with. Most of the owners hired such men on condition that they were to capture and return their runaway slaves without being bruised and torn by the dogs. The average sums paid hunters were ten, fifteen, and twenty-five dollars for capturing a slave. Very many times these sums were taken from the overseer's salary, as they were more or less the cause of slaves running away. My readers want to know whether the runaway slaves ever returned to the overseers and their masters without being caught by the hunters. Sometimes they did, and sometimes they never returned. Some stayed their lifetime, others, who would have returned, fell sick and died in the woods. My readers ask, how did the slaves at home know when their fellow negroes, the runaway, sickened or died in the woods? In general, someone on the plantation from which they ran away, or confidential friends on some other plantation, had communications with them, so that if anything happened to them, the slaves at home would find out through such parties. And sometimes, the masters and overseers would find out about their death, but indirectly, however, because if it was known that anyone on the plantation had dealings with the runaway, he would be punished, even though the information should be gladly received by the master and overseer. Sometimes groups of runaway slaves of eight, ten, and even twenty, belonging to different owners, got together in the woods, which made it very difficult and dangerous for slave hunters to capture those whom they were hired to hunt. In such cases, sometimes these runaways killed both hunters and dogs. The thick forests in which they lived could not be searched on horseback. Neither could man or dog run in them. The only chances the runner had of catching runaway slaves were either to rout them from those thick forests or attack them when they came out in the opening to seek food. Of course, the runaways were mostly armed, and when attacked in the forests, they would fight. My readers ask, how had they obtained arms, and what were those arms, since slaves were not allowed to have deadly weapons? Some had large knives, made by their fellow negroes who were blacksmiths. Others stole guns from white men who were accustomed to lay them carelessly around when they were out hunting game. The runaways who stole the guns were kept in powder and shot by some of the other slaves at home, who bought such from poor white men who kept little country stores in the different parts of the south. The runaway slaves generally had fathers, brothers, cousins, or confidential friends, who met them at certain appointed places, and brought them such things as were needed. The most they wanted from their fellow negroes at home was salt and a little corn flour, for they lived principally on beef and swine meat, taken either from their own masters or some other stock. My readers ask, did not some of the slaves at home betray their fellow negroes, the runaways to the white men. I answer, they did, but often such were well spotted, and if the runaway slaves got a chance at them while in the woods would mob or kill them. On the other hand, when they met those whom they could trust, instead of injuring them, they exchanged beef and swine meat with them for bread, corn flour and salt, such as they needed in the woods. The runaway slave in the house Instead of going into the woods, sometimes runaway slaves lived right around the overseers and masters' houses for months. A slave named Isom ran away from Thomas Clarkson, his master's son, who was the overseer. Mr. Clarkson was satisfied, as he said, that the unaccustomed runaway, whom he thought was in the woods, 
could not stay from home long, but finding that he stayed longer than expected, Mr. Clarkson hired a slave hunter with his dogs to hunt him. The hunter came early to the plantation and took breakfast with Mr. Clarkson on the day they began to hunt for the runaway slave. While sitting at breakfast, Mr. Clarkson said to the hunter, "'My father brought up that boy as a house-servant and petted him so that it takes all the salt in the country to cure him. Father had too much religion to keep his negro straight, but I don't believe in that. I think a negro ought to be overhauled every little while to keep him in his place, and that is just the reason why I took the overseership on this plantation.' The hunter well, what caused your boy to run away, Mr. Clarkson? Mr. Clarkson. Well, he ran away because I gave him an overhauling to keep him in the place of a negro. Mr. Clarkson's wife. Well, Thomas, I told you the other day, before you did it, that I didn't see any need of your whipping Isom because I thought he was a good boy. Mr. Clarkson. Yes, my dear. If South Carolina had many more such Presbyterians as you and Father Boston, he meant old Mr. Clarkson, in a short time there would be no slaves in the state. Then who would you have to work for you? I wish to state a fact to my readers. While there were exceptions, as a general thing, the Presbyterians made better masters than did any other denomination among the slaveholders in the South. Mrs. Clarkson. Yes, Thomas. If you were such a Presbyterian as you charged Father Boston and me with being, you could have saved yourself the trouble and money which it will cost to hunt him. Mr. Clarkson, well, we will not discuss the matter of religion any further. To the hunter, that boy has been away now for several days since I whipped him. I thought that he would have returned home long before this time, as this is the first time he has ever run away but I rather conclude that he got with some experienced runaways. Now, do you think that you can capture him without him being hurt or torn by your dogs? Mrs. Clarkson, that is just what I am afraid will be done to that boy. The hunter, oh, no fear of that, madam. I shall use care in hunting him. I have but one dog which is dangerous for tearing runaway negroes. I will chain him here until I capture your boy. The hunter blew his horn, which gathered his dogs, chained the one he spoke of, then he and Mr. Clarkson started on a chase for the runaway slave, who, secreted in the house, had heard every word they had said about him. After the hunter and Mr. Clarkson had gone, Mrs. Clarkson went to her room. As a general thing, the southern mistresses hardly ever knew what went on in their dining rooms and kitchens after meal hours, and Isom, the runaway slave, sat at the same table and ate his breakfast. After two or three days of vain search in the woods for the runaway slave, Mr. Clarkson asked some of the other negroes of the plantation if they saw him to tell him if he came home he would not whip him. Of course, as a general thing, when they stayed in the woods until they were captured, they were whipped, but they were not when they came home themselves. One morning, after several days of fruitless search in the woods for the runaway slave by the overseer and the hunter, while at breakfast, Isom came up to the door. As soon as Mr. Clarkson learned that the runaway slave was at the door, he got up from his breakfast and went out. "'Well, Isom,' said Mr. Clarkson. "'Well, Massa Thomas,' said Isom. "'Where have you been?' said Mr. Clarkson. 
"'I've been in the wood, sir,' answered Isom. Of course it would not have been well for him to tell Mr. Clarkson that he was hidden and fed right in the house, for it would have made it bad for the other negroes who were house-servants, among whom he had a brother and sister. Mr. Clarkson, Isom, did you get with some other runaways? Yes, sir, said Isom. Of course Isom's answer was in keeping with the belief of Mr. Clarkson that he had got in with some experienced runaway in the wood. How many were you? asked Mr. Clarkson. Two, answered Isom. What are their names, and to whom do they belong? asked Mr. Clarkson. I don't know, sir, said Isom. Didn't you ask their names, said Mr. Clarkson. No, sir, said Isom. Can you describe them, asked Mr. Clarkson. One is big like you, and the other was little like the man who was hunting me, said Isom. Where did you see the hunter? asked Mr. Clarkson. In the wood, sir, said Isom. Isom, do you want something to eat? asked Mr. Clarkson. Yes, sir, said Isom. He sent them around to the kitchen and told the cook to give him something to eat. Mrs. Clarkson thought a great deal of Isom, so while he was in the kitchen eating, she went in and had a long talk with him about how he got along since he had been away, as they supposed. As I have said, in general, when runaway slaves came home themselves, they were not whipped, but were either handcuffed or put in stocks, and locked up for two or three days. While Isom was eating and talking with Mrs. Clarkson, Mr. Clarkson appeared at the kitchen door with a pistol in one hand and handcuffs in the other. Mrs. Clarkson said, "'What are you going to do, Thomas?' "'I want Isom as soon as he is through eating,' said Mr. Clarkson. "'You are not going to lock him up, are you, Thomas?' said Mrs. Clarkson. Mrs. Clarkson's name was Henrietta, but her pet name was Henny. Mr. Clarkson said, "'Henny, I shan't hurt Isom.' Isom, who had a smooth, black, round face, full eyes, white teeth, was a very beautiful negro. When he saw the pistol and handcuffs in Mr. Clarkson's hands, those large eyes of his were stretched so wide, one could see the white, like great sheets in them. Mrs. Clarkson said, "'Thomas, please don't lock up Isom. He won't run away again. You won't, will you, Isom?' "'No, Mamma Massey, Henny, I won't,' said Isom. "'Well, Henny,' said Mr. Clarkson. "'He says so, but will he not?' "'Thomas,' said Mrs. Clarkson, "'I will take the responsibility, if you do as I ask you to. "'I will keep Isom around the house, and will assure you that he will not run away.' Mr. Clarkson wanted to lock Isom up very much, but he knew what a strong will his wife had and how hard it would be to get her right when she had got wrong. Hence he complied with her request. So Isom worked around the house for a long time. The hunter was to rest a few days, and then resume his work. But Mr. Clarkson wrote to him that his services would be no longer needed, as the runaway slave whom he was employed to hunt had returned himself. I never learned whether the hunter got paid for what he had done. End of section 6 Recording by Cotter Click.